All right. There's a lot of talk this time of the year about your Christmas wish, right? I mean, your, your wish for all of humanity, you know, if you wish upon a falling star and all that kind of stuff, which is all real nice, and it's all flowery and fluffy and all that kind of stuff, but it's not the real deal because what we really want is stuff, right? Come on. What we really want is stuff. Americans, we love our stuff, and we love a lot of it, especially this time of year. True, true story. Listen, um, did some research on this. This will blow your mind. The retail industry says that the two months prior to Christmas, the two months prior to Christmas, that we collectively spend, get this, $680 billion directly on Christmas presents. $680 billion with a B. Now, that means that the average household will spend about $800 specifically on the idea of celebrating Christmas. Now, if you're a parent in the room, it's even more expensive for you, of course, because they say that the average parent spends about $200 per child in their home on the idea of presents alone. And, and then, but it's not just our children that we buy for, right? Because we buy for our friends. Uh, the retailers tell us, the Gallup polls tell us that the average person will spend about $68.37 this year on gifts just for their friends. But they say that's not it either. We, we also buy for our coworkers. Apparently, they are not our friends. They're in a separate category. And it says that we, we, we spend almost $21, a little over $20 and presents for our coworkers. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot compared to what we spend on our family and friends, so we must not like our coworkers very much, but that's okay, um, because there's a whole other category that's literally labeled others. Like, and that's all it's labeled, others. And, and, and the Gallup company says that we spend about $23.07 on the other category. And I guess that's where your pastor might fall. Huh? Huh? Well, and it's not just the idea of gifts, but uh, collectively, um, the, the average adult, single adult will, in America, will spend roughly $700 towards celebrating Christmas this year. And, and get this, we spend about $1.6 billion on wrapping paper to wrap all these gifts. $1.6 billion, and all we do is we, and then we throw it away, Right? It's unbelievable, 1.6 And those of you who still use a live tree, statistics tell us that this year, the average live, live tree costs $43 across the nation. And, and, and this will blow your mind. The average household in America spends about $60 a year, each and every year, on new Christmas decor for your house because you have to have a tree to put those presents under and you gotta make your tree happy in your home right? And so uh, we love to spend. Americans love stuff. We love to be generous. Uh, we are into this idea of gifts, right? Um, I, I did some reading about some of the craziest gift-giving stuff that's out there. This will blow your mind. Have you ever heard of a guy named David Beckham? David Beckham? Uh, he is retired now, but he was a, a, a soccer pro over in England. Uh, and I guess they don't call it soccer over there. They call it football. And, and how stupid is that? I mean, they have, they, they kick around a ball with their foot. So they call it football. I mean, t- <laughs> Forget it. Yeah, anyways, a few years back, David Beckham was uh, obviously in the Christmas spirit because, uh, apparently, and apparently this blows my mind too, that there are people 
who track and follow what rich people spend their money on. This blows my mind that people are even out there doing this, but this was reported in all kinds of sources that uh, David uh, Beckham was apparently very, very much in the uh, Christmas spirit uh, toward his wife, Victoria, a few years back because it says that he started off the gift-giving day when they woke up in the morning presenting her with a $100,000 diamond-studded, diamond-encrusted handbag. I'm not even sure what a handbag is. But it was $100,000, right? But that wasn't enough because at noon, at lunchtime, uh, after breakfast at, at noon lunchtime, he, he gave her, get this, a $500,000 custom-made Rolls-Royce Phantom model. Then, not to be outdone, because that's not enough for your wife, apparently, right? Uh, because at dinner, he gave her a $2.4 million ruby and diamond necklace from Boucheron's, the very famous Parisian jewelry store. I'm sure you all shopped there, right? <laughs> now, now, to me, that's the Christmas spirit. Or maybe we have to ask, what did he do to his wife that was so awful that he had to do all that, right? <laughs> maybe there's something else going on. I don't know. But, but I don't know. If, I, I doubt any in this room. I, if you ask this question, what is the greatest gift What is the greatest Christmas gift you've ever received? I doubt that any of us in this room have ever received $100,000 anything as a gift. That would be my guess. Uh, Am I right? I mean, not too many of us are getting, you know, diamond-studded handbags or $500,000 rolls anything, right? Um, And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I don't know if this has even crossed your mind. But I want to let you in on a secret. Do you realize that you have a heavenly father. You have a heavenly father who is a crazy gift giver. You have a heavenly father who who, who wants to be outlandish and lavish and out of control in his gift giving towards you. You have a heavenly father who who makes little Beckham with his, you know, $2.4 million weak, weak necklace thingamajigger. He makes, God makes that look just silly and sick. Because let me tell you something, God is a crazy gift giver. God is a crazy God who, who is generous beyond belief. Are you hearing, hearing me on this, friends? Do you realize you have a God who loves you? And this may not have even registered with you before. And so here's what I want to do. Um, here, I want to explain to you what your heavenly father does for you. you. See, first, your heavenly father, he creates you. He fashions you. He forms you. Um, he, he gets your little heart beating. And he puts his breath. Listen to this. He puts his breath inside of you. He breathes life into you. And then above all that, listen, the scripture teaches us that, that he literally puts his image inside of your soul. That he plants a part of himself inside of you. And that image that he plants inside of you is meant to draw you back to himself. It's meant to draw you back to your relationship with him. This is why you go through life and you hear this nudge that there has to be this God out there. There has to be this this something out there that is bigger and broader and more eternal than I am. There's this call that is in your life. And then God does something crazy. If that's not crazy enough, he, he literally forms you, he fashions you, he breathes his life in you, he puts his image in you that is designed to call you to, toward him, and then, and then he gives you this gift called freedom. And he says, you can live your life any way that you choose. Even though you belong to me, even though I created you, you can live your life any way you choose. It's called free will. And he gives this to you. And here's the problem. You and me, we use our free will, don't we? And then we begin to do things and think things and embrace things 
that damage this image of God that is planted inside of us. We begin, to do th- we begin to do things that begin to tarnish, begin to stain this relationship with God, this image of God within, our, within us. We begin to try to fill our life and our soul with all kinds of stuff because our soul is inherently empty. You see, one day we wake up and we realize just how shallow of soul we really are. And my guess is almost everybody in this room has had this experience, whether you're a Christian or not. Where there is a moment in your life where you realize you needed something more. And, and so here's what we do. We go and we do this. We start to buy stuff. We start to accumulate stuff. We start to run after stuff, more stuff and more stuff. And we begin to put more and more stuff into our already empty soul. And we think it's going to fill us, but it doesn't fill us. And so when we end up not being filled, what do we do? We go back and we try all this stuff again. And then after that doesn't fill us, we go back and we try all this stuff again. And we always end up the same, empty. But let me tell you something. We have a heavenly father who is crazy about us. He loves us, and he gives us gifts. He chooses to reach into our life. And let me tell you something, friends. He does something more than gives us what we want. You might want a $2.4 million necklace, but he says, that's weak. You need something different. And our Heavenly Father, he gives us not what we want, but he gives us what we need. He offers a gift to us about what, what we need. And listen to how Jesus himself talks about how the Father in heaven treats you and me. This is Jesus' words about how our heavenly Father treats us. This is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 7. Jesus is speaking, and he says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who who asks, receives. And he who uh, seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, listen, the door will be open to you. Then he says to parents, any parents in the room? Any parents in the room? Come on, parents in the room. This is what he says about us. He says, he says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? He's making an assumption about parents that, that you love your child, that you're going to care for your children, that you're going to try to give them what they ask for. We're going to learn that he does something more than that for us. He goes on and he says this. He says, um, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a, uh, a snake? I hate snakes, by the way. I can't even believe Jesus would suggest that. All right? So, but, but he does. And he says, there's something wrong with us. Because if you then, even though you are evil, as parents, listen, you're not perfect. You've wandered. Your heart has become distant from God. There's a brokenness in your soul. There's a shallowness in your own soul. He says, even if you, though you love your children, there's something wrong with you. Even though there's something wrong with you, he says, you even still how to figure out how to give good gifts to your kids. But listen to this. He says, if you, though, you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Listen to this. Listen to this. How much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask of him? Mary Christmas. You have a father who looks at you and knows what you need and who wants to supply what you need. He wants to look into your life and to hand you things and to give you the things that you need most in your life. Not what you necessarily want, even though he might give you what you want as well. But way more than that, he gives us what we need. And and, and so, by the way, if you haven't noticed, we're in a series called Gifts 
It's our Christmas series here at Metro. And if it's okay with you, what I want to do over the next couple weeks together is I want to talk about the real gift giver. I want to talk about the real kind of gift that God will bring into your life if you let him. If you choose to bow your knee before him, I want to talk about what your heavenly father will give you. Is that okay with you? If we go after the real gift giver this year, um, we're going to talk about what our Heavenly Father gives to us. And so I want to unpack this a little bit for you because this idea of gift giving, that God the Father gives us gifts, is all throughout the scriptures. This is a very important concept in in scripture. As a matter of fact, there are several in the New Testament portion of scripture. uh, It was originally written in the Greek language, right? We read it in English, but it was originally written in Greek. And in the Greek language, there's actually several words that are used for this idea of of gifts, that your father gives gifts to you. And one of the most predominant expressions of this word gift uh, is is this word called charisma. Have you ever heard of it? It's like when you got charisma, it's like you got this gift. There's something about you. It's been handed to you. It's not something that you earned or you deserved it, but it was just kind of in you, right? You got this certain charisma about it. And, And so this word charisma is used 21 times in the New Testament alone. It's incredible. Uh, the most famous of which is probably Romans 6, 23. You may have heard of this verse. It says this, uh, for the wages of sin is death. What you earn because of your waywardness against God, he says the wages of your sin brings death into your life. But what the charisma, the gift, right? The gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so do you see this word there? Gift, charisma, God literally hands you something. God literally gives you something for free. It's a gift. It's, it's charisma. It, you didn't earn it. It's a gift to you. Now, what's interesting is that the root of this word, charisma, if you just knock off the two end letters, you get kairos. You get kairos. And, and that word uh, literally is, is one of the most important words in the entire scriptures. It it appears 159 times in in the New Testament alone. This is so important that we understand how just important this word is. Um, It's used 159 times in the the New Testament, and 130 of those Greek expressions is translated into our little English word, listen, grace. Grace. Kairos. Grace of God. That he gives you a gift It is a gift that he gives you himself, that he gives something to you that you did not earn, that you did not um, know how to manufacture it for yourself. So this word charisma comes from the word kairos, and kairos literally means grace. And so by definition, follow me on this, friends, grace is something that you did not earn. Grace is something that you do not deserve. It is a free gift because someone, listen, because someone is kind and generous and merciful towards you. And if you're a Christian today in this room, You have a heavenly father that gives you the gift of grace because he is kind and generous and merciful towards you. Merry Christmas, the greatest gift of all time. It's grace, listen friends, it is grace that God shows us when he forgives our sin. And listen, you understand that you are sinful. I don't even, even if you're not a Christian today, this is such a weird word in our society anymore, but listen, you know that your own blackness of soul You know what's broken in your soul. You know this. And God says, I will forgive that. I will forgive that because of this word grace. I will give you grace through my son Jesus. In other words, your sin and my sin has to be paid for. It has to be accounted for. We don't want a God who doesn't hold us accountable. But listen, he says, I will pay it for you. 
I will do what you cannot do for yourself. I'm going to pay your debt. I'm going to give my son Jesus in your place. Grace to you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's grace that drives us uh, in this process of becoming more like Christ. Uh, And this doesn't happen overnight. We grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Now, for you who have been in the church for a little while, if that's you, have you heard this before? That you're supposed to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? Anybody, have you heard this before? Yeah. But if you're brand new to this, what I'm hopeful for is that over the next several weeks, if you track with me, if you engage us here, follow us through this series all the way to Christmas, my hope is that you will walk out of this place understanding exactly what God offers you. That you will understand what this word grace is all about. It is a big word. It is, it is far bigger than most of us, even us church folks, could ever even have, have ever even realized. And, and so here's what I want to do. I just want to talk about this incredible gift of grace that our Heavenly Father wants to give us. And my hope is, is that a whole bunch of people will walk out of this series embracing the gift of grace because grace transforms our lives. Grace changes our desires. It changes our motivations. It changes our behavior. In, in fact, grace empowers us to do anything that is good in our life. Listen, anything that is good and noble and worth your pursuit in life, it is the grace of God that will carry you toward that. And we're gonna talk about this during this series. And so today, what I, would do, I wanna do is I wanna, you may wanna write this down. I wanna get around one, the first of, of three big overriding ideas of this thing called grace. And here's the first one. You may wanna write this down. The first one is this, is that grace changes our identity. That's all you got? Come on. God's gift of grace, it changes. Don't miss this. It changes who we are. It rebrands us. It makes us different. It makes us new. It renews us. It, it remakes us. It, it, it recalibrates our soul. But, but some of us go, well, I'm actually kind of good with who I am. And, and, and you're like, I kind of like who I am. I'm, I, I kind of got my act together. Listen, if that's you, I think that's awesome. No, I'm happy for you. But even you, if your life is up and rocking, I get it. But even you, my guess would be that somewhere back then, somewhere back in your past, you had some things that you did, some things that you thought, some ways that you acted or reacted that you wish you could go back and change. Even if this is you and you got it all together, you think there's some things that have carried through in your life. There's some things that have been branded on your soul, some weights that you carry right now that add a weight to who you are. And so I want to talk about this idea that how grace changes our identity. It changes who we are from the inside out. Now, I heard this story about this whole town that had gathered for this huge trial. It was a very, very big trial going on. And, and it was held in the local courthouse, of course. And, and the prosecuting attorney, when he started the whole case off, he, he stands before the crowd. He stands before the jury. And he calls his first witness to the stand. It was an elderly woman. She was really old. And, and as she comes to the stand, he approaches her and asks this. He says, Mrs. Jones. He's hoping to build some rapport with her, right? He says, Mrs. Jones. Um, do you know me? I mean, we've, we've known each other. We've lived in the same town for a real long time. Do you know who I am? And she responded, why, yes, Mr. Williams, I most certainly 
know who you are, and I've known you since you were a little young boy. And frankly, I got to be honest with you, you are a big disappointment to me. And he's like, what? And she goes on, she says, you lie, you, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people, you talk about them behind their, your, their backs, and you think you're a rising big shot in the world of law in this state? And she says, you're nothing but a two-bit penny pusher. You're just going to become a paper pusher in your life. That's all you're going to become because you don't know how to treat people. And, and when the, this prosecuting attorney, he hears this, and he doesn't know what to do with this, and he's kind of shaken from his game a little bit, and so he, he goes, well... He points to the defense attorney and says, well, do you know who, who Mr. Bradley is? And she says, well, most certainly, most certainly I, I, I do. And I, I, of course I know Mr. Bradley. I've known him since he was a youngster as well. As a matter of fact, I used to babysit him. And he too, I just got to be honest, is frankly a really big disappointment to me. Uh, he's lazy, he's bigoted, he has a drinking problem, he can't build a normal relationship to save his life. And his law practice is one of the shoddiest law practices in the entire state of Iowa, or wherever they were at, right? And, and when the crowd heard this, they all just kind of erupted, and they were like, what in the world? And, and so, of course, the attorneys are like, oh, my goodness, what's going on? And at that point, the judge, he just, you know, wraps the whole courtroom down, bangs his hammer, and he said, calls for silence, and then he invites both the prosecuting attorney and the defense attorney up to the stand. And in a real hushed tone, in a real whisper, he says, now you listen to me, and you listen to me good. If either one of you asks if she knows me, I will hold you in contempt of court. Do you understand me right now? I will send your butt to jail. <laughs> now, let's be honest, friends. Um, we've all been slapped with a few labels in our life. There's been a few things that have been branded across your soul that have been put in your mind somewhere way back then. And let's also be honest that we've done some labeling ourselves. We've done some branding ourselves. We have been hurt by words and we have hurt others with words. Uh, but, but, but many of us, the truth is that we go to great lengths to hide the truth about who we really are. We try to hide behind these masks. We try to make this false image of our life. And we think, hey, I'm good. And we want to let the whole world know that we're good, that we got our act together. There's no, nothing wrong or nothing broken in my soul. And I see it, friends. We come to church. How you doing? Oh, it's great, brother. Everything's good, sister. What? When you know that is just not the truth. But you see, we, we have a world who's, who, whose philosophy is that image is all that matters. And the truth is, is that many of us have bought this lie that the world says is that image is all that matters, right? And that is the world we live in. You know this, right? Is that image is what counts, what people think on the outside is what counts. I mean, Nike, the brand Nike, has spent billions and billions and billions of dollars to, to, to figure out, to, to convince you that if you wear their brand, you're this sort of a person. You're a champion. You're the best. You're, there's something special and unique about you. Nike call, says it like this, that labeling, listen, labeling matters. Brand identity matters. Um, there's people who, you know, buy into Ford, right? I mean, Ford's a great company. And, and people go, well, you know, I buy a Ford because quality is job one. And so if you buy Ford, you, you, you're obviously a quality person. And there's others, you know, who, who shop at Whole Foods and you think you love your family more than I love my family because you're willing to spend $19 on a pound of oatmeal, <laughs> right? And obviously you love your family way more than I love my family because you shop at 
whole foods. And, and this is what we do. Our image is closely associated with the labels that we wear, the labels that we drive, the labels that we shop at. We label our life like this because we think our image is what often matters most. And, and so like, you know, uh, you, you're obviously pretty if you wear CoverGirl magazine or what the CoverGirl makeup, right? You're obviously pretty, and they will put you on a magazine soon. It's, it's coming. If you wear this, you will be on the cover of a magazine. There's just no doubt about it, right? Um, so how do you like your label this morning you got, or this evening? You got, how do you like those labels? Yeah? Some of y'all going, oh, it's about time. I've been wondering what her name is, and this is helpful, Pastor J.S. I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about that label. How do, you, how do you like the label you've been branded with all of your life? How do you like the label that's been printed across your soul by so many people? You know, because somewhere back then, somebody slapped you with a label. And let's just be honest, you've been trying to live it down ever since then. You know, I remember uh, when I was just a little guy, I was a kid, and uh, this was kindergarten, mind you. True story, kindergarten. Long time ago. Uh, Mrs. Murphy, my all-time favorite teacher ever. I think I had a crush on her. Um, she, she was incredible, right? And I remember my parents coming to the uh, parent-teacher conference thing of Majigger Bobber, and I was so excited to show my parents the room and introduce them to Mrs. Murphy, and it was just going to be a great day. And, and I remember Mrs. Murphy saying something like, oh, Jeremy's such a sweet little boy. He's so sweet, and, and he's obviously beyond brilliant, and I made that part up. But, uh, but, you know, I remember her saying this kind of stuff and singing the praises, and then she says this, and I remember this. This was probably 40 years ago. But Jeremy is so hyperactive. He's obviously hyperactive. He's a sweet kid, but he's hyperactive. And isn't it funny how labels stick with you? Because I go into my first grade year with Mrs. Tricky, who is also the sweetest, coolest first grade teacher ever, and, and somewhere along the way she says, we were expecting you. You're the hyper kid, you know? And then you go to second grade, Mrs. Lewis, and uh, she was the only redheaded teacher I ever had. And um, she says, Mrs. Murphy's right. You are hyper, right? And then Mr. Skinner in my sixth grade year, he says, bend over because I'm going to beat the, the hyper right out of you. That was back in the day, glory to God, when we spanked kids in school, right? And, and, and he says, I'm going to spank that hyper right out of you. And the true story is, is that we live with these labels all of our life. They, they track with us. And, and no matter what we do to try to change or to move, move forward in our life, we, we seem to get put back in the same box over and over. You're tagged with this idea like, oh, you're, you're, you're shy. And so the day that you do something that's less than shy, that steps out of that box a little bit, people go, you can't do that. You're shy. You're not supposed to be like that. Or, or maybe you've been tagged with this idea that you, you, you've always been addicted to drinking and smoking. You're a smoker and you're a drinker. And so the day you decide to quit, people start going, well, you can't quit because you've always been this way and you're always going to be this way. Or, or maybe you've been labeled a spiritual no-show in your life. And, and your friends and, and your family, they've thought all of, their, all of your life that man, there's nothing rattling deep in your soul. And so now you're sitting in a place like this, and if they knew you were sitting in a church like this on your weekend, they would think you have flipped a lid. Because, listen, something starts stirring in you. Maybe it is true. For many years of your life, there was nothing going on in your soul. 
But that image of God that we talked about a few moments ago starts speaking into your life, starts rattling around in your soul and starts calling you a little bit. And now you want, you want more of that. And you're investigating that and you're moving forward. You're taking next steps toward that. And if they knew out there, if your buddies at work knew, they would say, oh, no, 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 no. That's not for you. And they would smack you down and they would beat you down. And you'd end up saying, you know what? They're right. I'm not spiritual. I'm definitely no Christian. And you see, we get these labels. And they carry with us for life. Grace gives us a new identity. A brand new identity. So here's what I want to do. I need a favor um, real quick. I need someone to, to join me up on stage. You're a good-looking young man right there. Come on up. Come on, what, what is your name on this? Antonio. Come on up here. Everybody welcome Antonio to the stage real quick. Okay, Antonio. Here's what I need you to do, my man. I need you to sit right here in this chair. I promise not to embarrass you too bad. Um, <laughs> but but here's, how, here's how life works, you see. Um, so my name is Jeremy. But, but, but through life, and your name's Antonio, which is a good name, by the way. Okay, but, but here's what happens. Uh, you, you want people to know it's Antonio, and you want them to see an image. But, but what if the truth is really known about you, and people see ooh, that you are a liar? Or what if they see that you're a hypocrite? Or, or maybe that you're a cheat? You see, the problem with this is that you may have been those things at one point in your life. You see the problem with life like this? Is that the, 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 the worst part of you is how you're often tagged for the rest of your life. And even if you want to grow, even if you want to change, even if you want to become somebody different, your wife reminds you that you're always going to be the same. Your husband reminds you that you're always going to be the same. Your family kicks you back down into the dirt. So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to sit there and be good. Don't leave, don't leave. And I'm going to read a passage of scripture uh, to, to us, if it's okay with you. This is the words, this is a story about the life of Jesus that comes out of Mark uh, chapter 10. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. If you open your heart to the reading of God's word, he will give you a whole new thought about his gifts towards you. He'll, he'll change something inside of you. Be open to the reading of God's word. Here it comes. Um, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46, it says, about the life of Jesus. Then they came to the city of Jericho. And as Jesus and his disciples together uh, with a large crowd, you see, anywhere Jesus seemed to go, there was a large crowd that gathered. And that makes sense because like when you walk on water and you like make bread come out of nowhere, people just kind of want to come around and check it out. And so there's these large crowds that are always following Jesus around. And so it says, as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man named Bartimaeus, Listen, named Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by, uh, along the roadside. He, and what was he doing, friends? He was begging. So you can see the label developing, right? He is a blind beggar. And when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming by, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, because, uh, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stopped and, said, and, and called him over, and, or said to them, call him over to me. And so they called the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped up to his feet and he came over to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you, Jesus says. The blind man answers, Rabbi, I want to 
see. Just tells it like it is. I want to see. And then Jesus says, go. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received sight and he followed Jesus along the road. And so what we're going to do is we're going to call this guy Blind Bart, if that's okay, right? Uh, and Blind Bart has, has found his way. I want you to think about the story. He's found his way by the roadside outside of Jericho. And there he sits day after day doing what? He's begging, right? He doesn't know how to make a living. He's, he's blind. And in this culture, in this day, there wasn't all kinds of social aids to help him along. And, and so what does he do? He, he does what? The only thing he can do. He, he literally begs for his sustenance. He, he begs for his daily, uh, his daily allotment of food, right? And, and so what's very interesting to me is that we know nothing else but what he's labeled. We don't know if he's, you know, we don't know if Blind Bart is, is a good-looking guy. No, Anthony, uh, you're, you're a good-looking guy. I'm telling you that right now. All right, you're welcome. But we don't know Blind Bart. We don't know that he was good-looking. We don't know if he was talented. We don't know if the guy could sing. We don't know that. We don't know if he could play an instrument. We don't know that. We don't know if he was creative, if he was smart. We don't know anything because the world always tends to label us with the lowest common denominator of our life. It's, it's what we used to be. It doesn't, it doesn't look forward. It doesn't allow us to change. You know, you could be headed in a whole different direction. You can be coming a whole different you, but the world just keeps going, yeah, 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 but that's so-and-so. I mean, it's like you go to a family party and you're like 42 now and they still treat you like you're 16. And you can't live down the things that you did when you were 20. Anybody hear me on this? You know exactly what I'm talking about. You're still like over in the kid table, right? But that's how life is. They tend to label the worst part of us and they keep us there. They haunt us with our, with our past. Um, and it's amazing when you hear the story about Bartimaeus uh, and his encounter with Jesus. Listen, all we're told is that he's a blind Beggar. Now let's walk through this story a little bit. Let's what's going on here because Jesus was on the move. Uh, he he was traveling south uh, west out of town toward the city of anybody remember from the scriptures? He's going to Jerusalem. And what's he going to be doing in Jerusalem? Jesus, what's Jesus doing in Jerusalem? He's going to be crucified. He's going to be crucified. And so he was never going to pass that way again. Uh, he was never going to be in the city of Jericho again. And so it says, uh, Blind Bart heard that uh, the reason for all the commotion, he hears all this noise, he hears all this crowd, all these people, and he hears about this. And, and remember, he's blind, he's not deaf, and so he's hearing all this, and he starts to figure this out, that it's Jesus who's coming this way. So I want to connect a few dots with you. The Bible says that he, that he couldn't see, but he could hear just fine. And listen, he knew all the stories of Jesus. He lived in the region. And when a guy is like walking on water one day and feeding a crowd of people like with, hey, like I was there, and he's over, he's listening, he's listening, like I was there, man. And, and this dude, his, his name was uh, Jesus, and uh, he, there's this kid, and he had this like like this little basket with some bread and fish, but it's like there was like no bottom in that basket or something was going on because all I know is I sat there and I watched him and there were thousands of us and he just kept reaching in and like giving out the bread. It was crazy. And so he hears about all these stories and he's starting to figure out that Jesus was not gonna pass that way again. And so the scripture teaches us something. And friends, if you're in church here today, or maybe you've been coming to church for a little bit, or maybe this is the first awakening in your soul that you've had in a long, 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 long time. The scripture says that when God comes near to you, when God begins to pass your way, it says to seek after him. 
to turn your heart when you have a chance to turn your heart toward him. Because you may never get a chance to turn toward him again. Because here's what it says in the scriptures. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is still near. And it's a sad thing, friends. What we do is this, is that we let the whole world identify us. We let the whole world, uh, including the devil himself, define who we're going to be. And we don't change. We sit in the chair. We don't grow. We sit in the chair. We don't move forward. We sit in the chair, sitting by the side of the road, being labeled blind beggar. But you were created for more than that. You were created to be different than that. And God wants you to move. He says, grace gives you a new identity. And let me tell you something, friends. Um, you can try to fix the outer image all you want. You can wear CoverGirl. You can wear Nike. You can shop at Whole Foods. You can do whatever you want. But it will never fix your soul. Listen to me. It will never fix your soul. What's broken inside you and what's broken inside of me can only be fixed by a real, growing, vibrant relationship with God. That's it. And it comes through his son, Jesus. That is the way to God. This is what the scripture teaches us. This is what many of us in this room have experienced for ourselves. That he gives us a new identity. And so maybe in your life, you've been told all of your life that you're a disappointment, that you're not moving forward, that you're unacceptable to God. Let me tell you something. God says you can be different. Listen, Johnny, that's a nice name. But the truth is, is that there's something deeper in your name, that you've been labeled something else. Joe, you know who you are for real. You know what's inside of you. You know your struggles. Let me tell you something. It's true, Mariah. It's true. You know who you really are in your soul. And what if the world could see all of that? They'll hold you down. They'll hold you back. But God did not create you to be you the way you are all of your life. He created you for more. He created you for different. He created you for better. Do you hear me? The Holy Spirit of God wants to do something great in your life. He wants to give you a new identity. And I want to show you a film of a young man who found a whole new identity in Christ. Check this out. I was raised by a loving family. They projected their love to push me and lead me in the right direction. Uh, even though I decided to take an alternative route. My sister, she was devoted from such a young age. We both were raised Catholic by our parents and we went to a Catholic school uh, for most of our lives. Um, growing up, we became a little distant only because uh, Sean and I were eight years apart. Um, I went off and got married and he stayed at home. Um, growing up through his teenage years, um, he started to have some difficulties and struggles with um, depression. And as he got older into his teenage years, it got worse and worse. Around the age of 12 or 13, I realized that my mind was different than everybody else's. I would get severely, severely depressed. And I would cut my thighs with razor blades and heat up screwdrivers to burn certain parts of my body where I could cover up with clothing so nobody could see afterwards. By the age of about 16 is when I really 
think I became pretty much an atheist and gave up on God's existence. Once um, he got married, he had this beautiful daughter and things seemed like they were okay for a little while, um, but then things got worse. And Sean got into the wrong crowd. Um, he started to drink. He was trying to deal with his depression. Um, and Satan just really got a, a really good grip on him. And um, from there, things got even worse. At the age of 26, I had already been married, separated, going through a divorce, and a father to the most beautiful daughter a man could ask for. I had also chosen to hustle pool for a living. And at this point in my life, my mind was the most out of control it's ever been. I had a big game coming up, and I was extremely nervous, and somebody offered me a Vicodin to calm my nerves. I was eventually hustling pool, and then was actually selling prescription narcotics to support my addiction, to numb out my emotions and my mind so I didn't have to deal with it. I finally got to the point where I decided to sober up and try to figure out what was going on in my mind and get help. So I went to my first psychiatrist and they put me on my first minor mood stabilizer and it actually triggered me to go into a severe manic episode. I was admitted to psych for the first time. I was put on more powerful antipsychotics and mood stabilizers and released. And it got to the point in my life where pain, suffering, and life itself was meaningless. One night when I went home, I took 18,000 milligrams of Seroquel and 60 milligrams of Xanax, only to be found the next day on the floor by my two-year-old daughter and my mother. After I became conscious in ICU, I remember praying for the first time in over a decade, and I was asking if God, if you exist, why didn't you take me? All the doctors told me there was no medical reason whatsoever that I wasn't brain dead or completely just dead. There was no reason whatsoever. He was constantly in and out of the hospital, um, tried to kill himself multiple times. Um, Satan just had such a grip on him. Um, I, I didn't know, my mom didn't know if um, we were gonna get a phone call telling us that he was gone. I mean, he constantly kept trying to hurt himself. Um, it just seemed like at that point, we knew that he was either gonna die or he needed a miracle. My childhood friend from about the age of five years old was working at his family's tire shop when two guys ran in and murdered him over $40. And for some reason, his death hit me really, really hard. I decided again once at that point that I was going to drink myself to death. So I went on a binge drinking for 13, 14 days without eating. So um, my faith was really tested at that time. I felt like giving up. Like, what was the point of praying anymore? Because God just wasn't hearing it. One day I was at work and I walked into one of my patient's rooms to give her some medications and there was a lady sitting next to her who I, I think was a family member. She was a visitor 
and she seemed a little strange. She seemed a little off. I'm not sure if she was mentally ill or what was going on with her, but I just remember her being different. And as I started to leave, this lady looked me right in the eye and she said, I know you've been praying for him. God hears you in his timing. And um, I was shocked. I didn't know what to think. I looked at her family members to see what they thought, but they didn't say anything. It was almost like they didn't even hear anything she said to me. So I was a little freaked out about the whole thing. And I left and uh, I started to pray for Sean again. Finally, I ended up at my best friend's house. After a couple days when she realized what I was doing, she told me to snap out of it. I went back to my mom's and I told her that I needed to get help. They again once admitted me to psych. But this time in psych, everything was different. There was a young 18-year-old girl who was schizophrenic and she couldn't even tell you her name. But I remember her walking down the halls with a copy of the New Testament Bible, humming and singing the verses and songs she had made up. And that just grabbed my attention like no other. I had attended service on a Sunday, nine o'clock service, and in the service, Pastor Jeremy was speaking of addiction, and he talked about suicide and depression and everything that Sean had really been struggling with. And I knew that God was speaking to me and that he needed to speak to Sean. One morning I woke up at about 6.30 in the morning to check out Metro. Did not believe in God whatsoever, denied his existence all the time. Just wanted to see what it was all about. And when I showed up, Pastor Jay was literally preaching right to me. I'm not gonna lie, I had chills after that. So after service, I walked back to Metro Kids where my sister was serving just to say hi. And when she saw me, she was in tears. And she told me she had prayed for somehow God to get me to this service. At that time, I didn't know it, but I talked to my husband. I went to go thank him for bringing Sean. And um, he said to me, I didn't bring Sean. So what do you mean? I sent you a text. He said, I never saw the text. We were running late for service. So Sean made it to that service um, on his own. I think he actually walked that day because he wasn't even driving. And uh, it was from that moment that I knew that God was really starting to work in his life. Later on, she talked to me and asked if, you know, I would think about going to Renew. And I thought about it and thought about it, thinking, you know, I've been through so many psychiatrists and so many therapists. What can these people tell me that I haven't already heard? But I decided, let's check it out. So I spoke with Sean, and he was willing, and him and I went to Renew that Tuesday. And um, it was just there that they just kind of welcomed him with loving arms. I realized that even Christians had people with addiction problems and mental problems. And I decided to share part of my story. Unlike any psychiatrist or any doctor, they thanked me and they told me they loved me. And it was honestly the most fulfilling time I've ever shared any part of my life. After the group, as I was walking out, I prayed again. I said, if you're real and you exist, I need some kind of sign. And I'll never forget it. On the ride home, we saw the lowest shooting star I have ever seen in my entire life. When I got home, I researched shooting stars. And I came across a couple articles that said they are known as P2 
teardrops from an angel or God himself. And I knew right there that he did exist this entire time. The more I pushed him away and the more I denied him, the harder he fought to pull me to him and he loved me even more. I believe that I was saved that night on the ride home. It wasn't that he was never talking to me. I just wasn't listening. My name's Sean Smith, and I am Metro. Let me tell you something. Grace, grace, this gift from God, changes your identity. It changes who you are from the inside out. Um, so we can't leave this story right here. We got to finish this story up. And so I'm going to need somebody else. You, Aaron, come on up. Aaron's a good man. Come on, everybody welcome Aaron to the stage real quick. Aaron's going to be um, our, our Jesus person here. And he's the closest thing we got to Jesus in the whole church. And so, uh, so Aaron, here's your deal, man. You're going to stand right here and just be Jesus for us. All right? I'm not going to say anything to you. I'm not going to bother you. I'm not going to embarrass you. Just stand here and act like Jesus. Okay? So here, here's the deal. Now let's play this story out a little bit because you, you have Bart. He's sitting there begging, and, and he hears this big crowd coming along, and, uh, and, and he hears a commotion. Again, he's not stupid. He's blind, and he, and he, he can hear what's going on, and, and he realizes that this is the moment because he's hearing this name. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, man. It's Jesus. Jesus, come on, man. Jesus. He's hearing all this, and all of a sudden, he realizes that God is passing near him. He's realizing that this is his moment to seek him. And so Blind Bard does something crazy. He, he starts going, Jesus! Jesus, son of God! Messiah, have mercy on me! Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me! And they're all going, shh, 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 quiet. Don't you know that you're yelling? Don't you know it's Jesus who's passing by? He's like, yeah, that's why I'm yelling at you. Because I got to get to him. And I can't do it on my own. And so he's yelling, he's going crazy, people are going, shh, quiet, shh, quiet, shh, quiet. And he's like, I'm not giving up, because I am not made to sit here begging blind my whole life. I need more than that. And so listen, so the scripture says something, blows your mind. It says Jesus is in motion, he's moving out of town, he's got he's this big crowd, and in the middle of this big crowd, he must have heard his name being shouted in a way that caught his attention, because something made him stop in his tracks. Merry Christmas. I want you to think about this. The centerpiece of humanity, the centerpiece of all creation, the centerpiece of humanity stops when one lost person cries out to him. I mean, I want you to, that to land on you for a second. The son of God stops in his tracks because, listen, you matter to God. When you cry out to him, you matter to him, and he hears. And so the scripture says that Jesus says, come, bring Bart to me. So he must have already like moved past him, and he's like hearing this over his shoulder, or something's going on, but he goes to his closest followers and says, go get him, tell him to come here to me. And so they take Bart, and they bring him across, which is really an interesting thing. And so let me take you over here, Bart, real quick. And so watch it. I hit the chair with the last guy. He was blind, though, but you know. And so... So listen, so they bring Bart to stand next 
to Jesus. Now, what's very interesting to me is when they get to this whole deal, they, 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 uh, what do you think Bart asked Jesus for? Did, he has this little tin cup or something. Did, he, did you think he asked him for a couple of coins? Could you like, fill my coins up? Like, could you just give me like, a new set of clothes? He says, I don't need any of that. I don't need any of this stuff anymore. He says, I want to see. He asked for his greatest need to be filled. So let me put this in perspective. If you struggle with depression, he says, what what can I do for you? Jesus literally says, what can I do for you? And Bart says, I want to see. You, you, you struggle with being thinking of yourself as like a failure? What can I do for you? Do you have an addiction that just doesn't seem to shake in your life? What can I do for you? Do you, do you have like a, like a part of you that just seems to be broken perpetually? There's like a hopelessness inside of you? He says, what can I do for you? And Bart says, I want to see Friends, you have a heavenly father who wants to give you what you need most. And I don't know what that is, but you do. You know exactly what you need. And so what's interesting about this story is that Jesus turns toward Bart and he says, <laughs> he, he literally says, go. Go, you will see you will begin to see your, your faith has healed you. And what's interesting is the story goes on to say, Bart followed Jesus after that. And I'm thinking, no, duh. Right? I mean, where else are you going to go? But what's interesting, it doesn't say he had to be led. It doesn't say that he had to be coached or coined to go. He, he just followed because he knew that his deepest need was met nowhere else other than Jesus. And so Jesus takes all this and says, you were these things. Now you're new. You're just Bart. Yeah, let's get rid of that one too. There you go. Thanks, Jesus. He says you're new. Thanks, guys. You guys have a seat. Now listen. Um... Here's what the scripture says. That grace changes you. And you go, well, what's this got to do with me? Like, well, I don't even get this. What do you mean? This has everything to do with you. You know exactly who you are on the inside. You know exactly where your struggles have been all of your life. And he says, you don't have to be that person. You can grow, you can move forward. You can change, your home can change, your, your parenting can change, your children can change. Whatever it is that is struggling, whatever it is that is broken, he says, I give you a new identity. So here's what we're going to do. Could you just help me out with this? Grab your little sticker thingamajigger there. No, no, don't touch it. I did not say to touch it. On three, on three, I want you to grab this thing, and all together, we're going to take it away. Ready? One, got it, ready? Two, Three. Did you hear that? Isn't that a beautiful noise? I think that's what the grace of God sounds like. 
tearing off the old and bringing something new. Listen, friends, um, the scripture says it like this. It says, if anybody is in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new comes. That's what it says. And grace changes us. And it begins a new work inside of us. Jesus says, you were once blind, now you see. You were once dead, now you're alive. You were once thirsty, now you have, been, have, your, have your soul quenched. This is the starting point of grace. That you have been forgiven of your sin if you call on him. That you know the brokenness of your soul. You know the things that you've done that have turned you away from God. And he says, if you cry out to me, son of David, have mercy on me. He will forgive you. And he'll begin to restore your life. And so here's what I'd like to do. I just want to lead you um, in a closing prayer together. Could, could you just bow your head for a moment with me? He says, what can I do for you? Tell him right now. And don't be shallow with it. And don't be simple with it. And don't dance around with it. What can he do for you? Tell him right now. Call out to him right now. He's near. What keeps you from God's best? Tell him. What's broken in your soul? Tell him. What keeps dragging you down? Tell him. Where do you need to be freed? Tell him. And ask him to forgive you. He is faithful and just to forgive you if you ask. Father in heaven, thank you for your mercy over us. You are the great gift giver. And God, I invite your spirit to fall on this place. God, there are some things that the stuff of this world cannot fix. We need something different. We need something more from you. And it just seems so clear that you are the great gift giver who gives what we need, not what we want. So I pray for my brothers and my sisters in this room. My brothers and sisters, I pray that you would know the grace of God, that his spirit would wash over you, that it would purify you from the inside out that you would know that he could make you new. That he would give you a new name, a new identity. I pray that you would know this grace. My brothers and sisters, I pray that you would walk in this grace. That you would accept this grace. That you would find strength in this grace. That you would find hope in this grace. That you would find renewal in this grace. 
May the Spirit of God speak to you and write a new identity on your heart. In Jesus' name, together we say, amen, amen.